All right. Uh, let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Uh, and uh, if you want to, you can also start turning to First Timothy, uh, where we will be tonight. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time, uh, for an opportunity to get into your word, uh, to focus our hearts and our minds, uh, to, to put off the, the busyness of the week, uh, the arguments, the frustrations, uh, whatever else is going on in life, uh, and a time to center ourselves and our, our minds on your word, uh, that it would be a lifeblood to us, that it would refresh our hearts, and Lord, that we would leave worshipful uh, and in adoration uh, of you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Right. So we are finishing through verse 11 this week of 1 Timothy chapter 1. But in order to put all of Paul's argument together, I want to start reading from verse 3 all the way through to the end of chapter, or sorry, verse 11. Uh, because we, what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is putting together the pieces of Paul's argument uh, bit by bit. And now we're going to get the huge payout uh, of, of trying to see what is his full, full-orbed argument uh, for, for the use of God's law in the life of the church for health. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Just as I urged you when I was traveling to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote contentious disputes rather than stewardship from God, which is of faith. The goal of our teaching is love that issues from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from a sincere faith. Some people, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of God's law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make these confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, provided one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who are homosexuals, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is against sound teaching in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God of which I have been entrusted. These verses are Paul's full introduction to his letter. Uh, he's introduced us to the central problems going on in the church that Timothy is pastoring. And these, letter, uh, these, these words kind of serve as guardrails for us to understand the rest of the letter and all the disputes that are going to be brought up and unearthed as we, as we continue to move forward. So the central premise that I want you to keep in front, of your, uh, in front of your eyes tonight is that the law is to be used rightly, and a right use of the law needs the gospel. So if you think about how the law and the gospel go together in Paul's understanding, they, they lean on each other as, as mutually helpful and mutually edifying for the church. If you have the gospel without the basis of the law, 
you are going to misunderstand and misuse and, and fail to really grasp what the gospel is about. And if you have the law apart from, well, the good news of the gospel, you're also going to misuse and understand and, and uh, abuse the law's use. So the law and the gospel are mutually edifying, mutually encouraging for the church. And I think this, this is the full thrust of what Paul means when he says, provided one uses the law lawfully, provided one uses the law rightly. We've been playing with the idea for a couple of weeks now. What does it mean to use the law lawfully? I've, we've been going almost word by word through Paul's list there. And now we see Paul's full argument is the law's lawful use is according to the gospel of the blessed God. So the, the, the gospel informs how the law is to be used. And so we're going to spend a, a little bit of our time then exploring why would Paul need to say that? And what are ways that we can go wrong with, with the law and the gospel trying to put those two things together? So it's, it's not a stretch to say that Paul is defending misuse of God's law on the ground in context. You can see that uh, right before he begins to list out the law of God. He says, uh, there are those who desiring to be teachers of the law, but not knowing what the law is or what they are saying or about the things which they make confident assertions. So the problem on the ground is that these people want to be law teachers, but they don't get the law. They don't understand it. And, and Paul goes on to argue they're actually guilty of violating it. And he corrects their misunderstanding, not only by naming the law, but naming the gospel in verse 11, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And then he says, of which I have been entrusted. So Paul, remember at the beginning of the letter, charges Timothy to rebuke false teachers. And his, Paul feels a sense of responsibility because he's also been entrusted with the gospel, the protection of this, this gospel. And for him, protecting the gospel also means protecting the law and protecting sound teaching of, of both of these things. So then the question becomes, well, what is... What are some wrong uses of the law that we could understand on the ground? And then, and then what is the right use of the law as it, as it leans on the gospel? I think uh, a helpful way to think about this, if you know the, the old uh, Brothers Grimm fairy tale story of Goldilocks, uh, you have the, the, she goes in and, 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 and you need j that just right thing for her, to, uh, for her to be happy and satisfied, right? Not too big, not too small, just right. Uh, not too hot, not too cold, just right. This is the story of Goldilocks. And we need that with the law and the gospel as well. Not too much law, which overcomes the gospel and, uh, and abuses it. And not so much grace in the gospel that you overcome the law and, and do away with it, but this kind of sweet spot understanding of, of both. So one wrong use of the law, uh, which could be what Paul is talking about on the ground, and we'll see this as it develops in 1 Timothy, is using the law as though it were gospel, using the law as though it is gospel. Now, the law is not the gospel. The law is not the good news of the salvation that God offers. The law provides the pretext for which the gospel can enter into the world. This is Luther's classic understanding that the law rebukes and, and, and bruises, and the gospel provides healing balm to the soul. So the law cannot serve as the gospel. This is, this is the foundation for every form of legalism, is to say that, well, the, God gives us his law, his commandments, his rules, and provided we follow those rules perfectly, we merit righteousness before him in obedience to his law, and then we earn favor before him, and then he justifies us 
on the basis of the observance of his law. This is the, the mistake of the Pharisees, which is why they separate from the world because they're trying to be so law observant and so tight with the details that they think they, they can really merit justification before, before God. So using the law as gospel is a very poor way to use the law, but nevertheless, it is, it is a common way to use the law. This is salvation by our obedience. Now this is completely unlivable, it's, it's not practical, for the simple reason that human beings are corrupt. And so anyone with an honest self-assessment who's not totally blind to their own nature and, and, and work in the world would, would have to understand that they do fall short of God's law. Now, the reason some people think that it is possible is because they conflate obedience to the law with merely external displays of righteousness and not the internal heart that the law also demands. Now, you might think about Ezekiel 36 or Jeremiah 31, where God promises in the new covenant to put his law within the hearts of people. But the law from the heart, being obedient from the heart, is not something that is, is new with Jesus. It's actually something Moses commands of the Israelites. He, he commands them in his final discourse before they go into the promised land, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts so that you may be obedient to the Lord your God. Or he says, I, I charge you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, so loving God with, with everything that you are from the heart, that kind of obedience, is not something new with Christianity. It's, it's actually true Judaism loves God from the heart. The problem is the law can't accomplish that. The law tells you what you ought to do and what you should do, but also what you are incapable of doing on your own because you are corrupt by nature. So what happens when someone says the law is righteousness is they have to redefine what it means to actually be obedient to the law. And thus they redefine it as merely external displays and, and not only external displays, but only external displays that other people can see. So uh, this is what I would like to call righteous, the righteousness of politics. So politicians are, are well known for putting on one front to the world and kind of covering up as much else as they can get away with. This is why people don't trust politicians. And, and it's because they know that in order to get elected to office, you don't actually need to be righteous. You just need to project a certain kind of righteousness in line with your voting base, and then you can make it to office. This is not the right understanding of God because God actually doesn't just see your external. He sees everything, the internal, the external, all of it. And moreover, it is hypocrisy to do something externally which is not rendered true internally. So this is a completely unlivable way to use, use the law. The law is not the gospel. Salvation cannot be merited by obedience. And false external obedience isn't true obedience. And, and also, false external obedience uh, also devalues repentance. If you live in a, in a culture or in a, in a uh, Christian community that has misused the law in this way, there will be little to no repentance of any kind publicly, privately, uh, perhaps you have experienced relationships like this where people don't want to confess that they've ever sinned. They want to save face. They want to be seen always as in the right. Uh, it is a devaluing of repentance because repentance is, is weakness. If you need to be obedient in order to be saved, well, you don't want to tell people when you messed up. You don't want to tell people when you, when you fell short of God's glory. Uh, so repentance is devalued almost to the point of oblivion. And so that's not a livable way. That's not, that's not the grace that God invites us into as, as believers. That's not what's in view when Paul says lawful use of God's law.
There's another misunderstanding of the law. And I, I said it's possible that the false teachers on the ground in First uh, Timothy are misusing the law as a means of obedience. But I think what the rest of the letter will show us is while that might be a possibility, the more common distortion of the law is that the law is undone or overthrown by the gospel. That's more than likely why Paul has to go list not just sins, but kinds of sinners in his list through the Ten Commandments. You'll notice he doesn't just list sin activities. He lists kinds of sinners, people who are by nature in this way, possibly because he's letting Timothy know when you see people doing these kinds of things, that's a mark of a false teacher because they're disobeying God's law. Now, that's likely the false teaching that's going on in, in 1 Timothy. There's kind of free grace theology, which says something to the effect of God's law is, is only purpose is to draw us to the cross, but it doesn't tell us how we ought to live. It doesn't tell us what God requires of us. It simply tells us that we fall short of God's glory and we are dependent on his grace, but it goes no further. Now, this is an undesirable way to live. One, because it's in contradiction with Jesus' own teaching in the New Testament. But before we get to the scriptural argument, I just want you to think about a, a worldview live in this way. Imagine living not in external obedience at all to God's law and walking around the world and claiming, but I love God and I serve him. And people look at your life and they say, but your life doesn't show any of that. Um, I was struck uh, this week and, and last week we were required some, some reading for one of our seminary classes where Athanasius, one of the church fathers, makes a defense for the incarnation. And one of his defenses to the philosophers of the day that the incarnation is real <coughs> and, that, and that Christ is a true savior is that people who are converted to Christianity are actually obedient from the heart to the things God requires of them. I'll, I'll read you a quote, which is, is so striking. He, he's comparing uh, Christ to the gods of this world. And he says, what, what else can explain this? Who else has so rid men of the passions of their nature, of their sexual immorality, and that are now chaste men? Who else has rid men of their murderous intentions and no longer people who are holding the sword? And who are those who were formerly mastered by cowardice who now play the man? In short, who is the one who persuaded men of barbarous countries and heathen men in diverse places to lay aside their madness and, in, and to peace of mind, if not the faith of Christ Jesus? So who is it that restrains men and causes them to actually act as though they love God? It's the God of the Bible. So just from an apologetic view, it's, it's hard to say I love God and I'm, I'm forgiven by him and I live in service to him. If at the same time, you, your whole lifestyle says, I don't actually obey the law of God because I don't think it is important or required of me. Uh, because God tells us how we, ought to, how we ought to live in his word. Now, there's also two theological problems on the ground with this kind of view of the law. It, just like the, the first wrong view of the law uh, is a false external kind of obedience, this view of the law where it says the law is undone or, or to be done away with, it produces a false repentance. Because true repentance is not repentance back to neutrality. True repentance is repentance into obedience. To truly repent, you've probably heard this idea before, metanoia is the, the, the Greek term in the New Testament. Repentance means to turn away, like that 180 degree turn, you've probably heard that language before. The idea of repentance is you not only stop sinning, but you also actively pursue righteousness. 
So a false repentance would say all you need is to stop sinning, but that there's no righteousness required after that stopping of sin. Uh, this is all over the New Testament, this idea that true repentance is repentance that is not only an internal reality, but also externally manifest into the world. Uh, what kind of conversion would we think about with, with a guy like Nicodemus? If, if he didn't also redo the unrighteousness or, or make right the unrighteousness that he had done to uh, people. He had, he had extorted them. He had, he had done all kinds of wickedness towards them. Uh, or, or not Nicodemus, sorry, Zacchaeus. And, and he, uh, he, in his repentance, seeks to make restitution for the wrong that he's done. That is not justification for him. It is a, is a fruit of the fact that he actually believes that he's been forgiven and he ought to live righteously before God. So it, it leads to false repentance, uh, this, this wrong view of the law, that the law is to be done away with by God's grace. But it also, it, it, it totally devalues obedience to God's law. Obedience uh, is something that the New Testament commends to us as Christians, that when you are born again, when you are brought about to faith in Christ, one of the first signs is that you live your life in a totally different way. Now, you might know this in your own life, in your own testimony, because when you were brought to faith in Christ, you can't just wake up the next morning and, and do the same things you used to do before. You can't watch the same things. You can't say the same things. You can't absorb the same kind of material. You're, you're different in a, in a fundamental kind of way. And Christian testimony tells us that if we can't go back to our old ways of life, uh, that's not just something that the law has put on us. That's something the gospel has put on us because we're, we're constitutionally changed in terms of our orientation. Our desires are different. They've been, they've been totally transformed. But I don't just want you to hear this from, from me saying in, in the rest of Timothy, he's going to argue this. But I also want you to see this in the letter of 1 John. You've probably heard me make reference to this letter uh, a number of times before. But it, the theology in 1 John is just so, so profound. And, and this is found in 1 John chapter 2. Verse uh, 15 through verse 17. And John is writing to a church of, of believers who are facing all kinds of all, their own kind of false teaching, different from what's happening in, in 1 Timothy. But he, after commending them on their victory over sin, he writes in, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things which are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the things that are in the world, or for, for that which is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, uh, they are not, the love of the Father is, is not in them. And the world, and all that is within it, its lust and its passions, the world is passing away. But the gospel, God's grace, the love of God, remains unto the end. In 1 John, he, he writes to this church to commend them to stop loving the world and all that is within the world. Now, the idea of, of John in his letter, I think, is similar to the, the thrust of Paul as he commends to Timothy, rather than false teaching, true teaching is, is motivated by the gospel of grace. The idea is not that the gospel only undoes and, and, and resets your sin to zero. The gospel actually constitutionally changes you and orients you towards obedience and faith, that your desires are different, that you, you cannot love the world or the things of the world anymore. You're actually oriented differently to loving God and the things of God. I think that's the idea that Paul is getting at here as well. So a, a wrong use of the law in, in part 
is aimed at uh, seeing the law as gospel. That's not true. Another wrong, wrong use of the law is to see the law as being undone or overthrown by the gospel. But then that leaves us with the right view of God's law. Uh, what is the right view of it? That Goldilocks, that sweet spot ideal, which is that the law and the gospel mutually support and undergird one another and help us to understand how we really ought to see each of them. That the law informs the gospel and the gospel informs the law and both of them are, are useful for the church to be healthy. So what would that look like on the ground? This would be the idea of salvation, not which is merited by obedience, but salvation which causes obedience. Salvation which produces obedience. This is often in America conflated with the first idea that I proposed of legalism. If, if you are different from other Christians in how you want to live and walk, and that's because of God's working in your hearts to call you to obedience and faith. Other Christians who are, who are not wanting to be obedient in that way, other people who call themselves Christians, will look at that and say, that looks just like legalism because it looks like you're valuing God's law and wanting to be obedient to it. But this is a totally different kind of thing than legalism because legalism says, obey so you can have salvation. And the true gospel and, and the law together would say, uh, you, you obey because you already do have salvation, because you already are a son of the king. You, you walk and live as a son of the king. Uh, you no longer pursue the things of this world because you are not of this world. You are, you are simply a pilgrim passing through. This, this view of God's law, I think, provides the most livable view as a Christian, but also it, it provides the greatest freedom for the Christian to live in this world because God's law, rightly used to color in what, the gospel is, what, what is required in the gospel and also what is required as a result of the gospel, uh, that use of God's law provides life. That's kind of what we, I've been saying for the last couple of weeks is the law is not just something that uh, tells us to flee to Christ and the cross, but after we come from Christ, we, we are pointed back to the law, back to what is required of us, and now we are actually with a new heart and a new spirit told to live in obedience to this, and, and we actually can do so because of the grace of God which is at work within us. Not perfectly, but in a way that is constitutionally different than before we were saved. We can actually be obedient from the heart because our desires are, are different. That's a freeing kind of thing because not only then do you have this momentary experience of having been brought to faith in Christ, but you have this lifelong testimony, not perfectly, but growingly, that testifies to you and to the world around you that you are marked out as different from the world. So that when you are tempted to sin, you can say things like, well, I'm actually different, and I've been on a different path for a, a whole long while now, and I'm not going to give up on that now just because I, I stumbled and fell. I can actually get right back up and continue to walk in the grace of God because it is his grace which supports me and undergirds this effort. It, it's a kind of freedom which is different from the world because the world is despair, uh, the world uh, would say that Christians shouldn't pursue this kind of thing because it, it honestly it offends the world when Christians live in obedience to God's law because it, it exposes how short they fall of God's law, which they already know, but it's also hard when you see other people wanting to live in obedience to God's law and, and, and you don't desire to do so. Additionally, uh, the law of God used in conjunction with the gospel, I think appropriately restrains our sin. And here's what I mean by that, is that when, when you just have the law, all you have is that you sin. But you don't have the solution to any of that sin. You just, you just have the diagnosis of sin. 
but no freedom, no life. If you just have the free grace of God, but no law, then you just have the understanding that you are forgiven, but not what you're forgiven from or how you should live as a result of having been forgiven. When you take both of those ideas and you push them together, you actually have the right idea that you fall short in all these ways. The gospel provides the means of grace by which you can be forgiven and oriented rightly towards God's law. And then it, it, the, the law gives you those tracks to run on by the power of, of God's grace. This, this restrains our sin in a marvelous way because when we fall short, well, we're not trying to earn legalism obedience. So we can actually go right back to the cross, ask for forgiveness, repent, and be found right in relationship with God again. But we don't, we don't just wallow around in our sin, almost embracing it and holding close to it as though it's something precious to us because our sin is not precious to us. We are, we are done with our sin. So it restrains our sin in a totally unique kind of way to put these ideas together. Now, this is the idea I think that the Western church needs to recapture. And that's not just to say the whole Western church. I think it starts here at home to actually live in the world in a way that the world says uh, Christians actually do have something different going on. So often Christians desire to be just like the world, to look, smell, and feel like the world so that we can rub shoulders with the world and then maybe squeak the gospel in there in, in random conversations. And Paul does commend to us this kind of idea of being all things to all people. But what he means by that is not being like the world so that while the world's drowning in sin and you're drowning in sin, you can cry out to the world and say, well, I've heard about this man named Jesus. You actually have to come at the world with, from a position of having been rescued and offering rescue. Uh, imagine uh, a coastal rescue diver, a uh, coastal rescue swimmer who goes to someone who's caught out in the middle of a, a storm on the ocean and who from their, from their rescue boat sees the person drowning in the water and goes to that person, jumps in the water with them with no equipment and says, ah, I'm drowning with you too, but don't worry, there's a rescue boat over there. The person who's drowning would say, what are you doing? You were the one who was in the boat, who, who could have provided that means of escape, and now you've jumped in the water with me, and now all we're doing is both looking at the hope that we have, but without any real salvific ability to us. This is what it's like when a Christian is entrenched in sin, engaging in all kinds of sin with other sinners in the world, and then when sinners in the world say, well, I wish there was something different, the Christian says, ah, I have this, this gospel idea, but it has no power behind it. It has no real hope because all the Christian is saying, well, I've heard about that too. But they're not providing that from a, from a means of having experienced it and having the offer of, of grace. Moreover, the world often won't believe you if you say this gospel is transformative and offers hope because that should be evident in your life if that, if that is the case. So as a church... I would encourage us to strive to balance the grace of the gospel with the edification and the rebuking of the law. That when you understand both of those together rightly, uh, they, they actually provide the foundational means of understanding the word of God. And this is crucial to understanding Paul's argument in 1 Timothy because next week you're going to see that Paul is going to underscore his own testimony as a, as a kind of template or exemplar of what it means to live in this way. And one of the chief things that he talks about is his, how he is now transformed, constitutionally different. That he was a sinner and now he's forgiven. And not that he's forgiven back to his sin, but he's forgiven to live in a different kind of way. And, and you don't get that if you undo the law. And you don't get that if you only have grace. You need both of those things together to understand what he's getting at. And that's not just to say that uh, you misunderstand the law, uh, and, but you can still somehow keep the gospel. If you misunderstand the law, you also lose the gospel. 
If you misunderstand the gospel, you also lose the law. You actually need both of them together to, to point to one another, and both of them together offer this complete picture of, of the Christian life. The gospel is the grace of Jesus, but Jesus is saving us from something and into something, and the law is the background for what he's saving us from and also the pretext into what he's saving us to. That the gospel is the power, but the law is still the railroad tracks that we, we run on as, as believers. So with that, uh, let me just close in a word of prayer, and then we can get into some more discussion. God, we thank you for uh, this text, these words, this opportunity to study and explore these ideas uh, in Scripture. Lord, we ask for uh, you to help us as we are often new to these things, weak in these things. Uh, so often we fall short of your glory, and yet we know that you offer grace in Christ Jesus, that we do not have to merit salvation on our own accord that is freely offered to us. But Lord, neither do you uh, tell us to just be forgiven and go on in sin. Uh, you actually call us to a new way of life, a new pattern, a new, a new uh, transformed heart, a new, a new way of living. And Lord, we pray for your grace to abide in both our sin and in our living, that we would be manifestly known as believers in this world, and also that we would know that you are gracious to us as we fall short of that standard. We thank you for all these things. Amen.